Zyron Sports on 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. And we're honored to have Matt Sullivan, author of Can't Knock the Hustle, a book that just came out that I think everyone is talking about. And it's a story about the New Jersey Nets, I mean, not New Jersey, the Brooklyn Nets uh, seasoned last year, dealing with the bubble, dealing with uh, the George Floyd social unrest, Kyrie, KD, everything. So you really covered a lot of ground there in this book. And Matt, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Appreciate you having me, Ira. So the title of the book is Can't Knock the Hustle. And we mentioned all those issues that you covered and covered in betting with the team for a year. But that comes from now we're down here in West Palm Beach and in Florida. And there's been talk about Spencer Dinwiddie as a free agent might be a possibility for the Heat. So tell us about you chose Can't Knock the Hustle. That's a quote from Spencer. What is so interesting? I mean, you have all these cast of characters from Kyrie to KD, the Nets, everything. But you chose your title to be from Spencer. And he comes across as very interesting in the book about his background and everything he's trying to do with the NBA. Can't Knock the Hustle is a, a Jay-Z song from Reasonable Doubt. 25th anniversary was last week. Shout out to Jay-Z. But yes, I, I think everybody was complimenting uh, Spencer's entrepreneurship, his real off-the-court push as, you know, you can't knock his hustle because he's always pushing the boundaries of what it means to be an athlete and to be really a famous person. I think Spencer would be a great fit with the heat, not just on the court for Spo. But really for the city, for the state, and for kind of bringing his, his hustle, his vibe down to Miami. He's got, uh, he tried to IPO his own contract, which I, I won't waste your listeners' time trying to <laughs> explain Bitcoin. But he also um, has his own app trying to expand the idea of influence and quote-unquote creators into this galaxy where you can really interact directly with, with athletes, with celebrities, instead of just at mentioning them and jumping in the comments. Spencer's one of those guys who is really, really up close with his fans and I think is one of the kind of athletes of the future who doesn't need to be a superstar, as you would imagine it, so much as what I call the superstars of tomorrow. And then it was interesting in the book because you talk about you spend the interviews you had with Kyrie and Katie are amazing um, because, of course, they're very hard to people to interview and to get to talk to. But on one hand, they're they're talking about KD is unhappy with Golden State. Kyrie is happy, unhappy with Boston. You talked about the meeting that they sort of came together and said, we got to find a team together that we want to go to. But the way you the book sets it up is that Kyrie really always wanted to play for Brooklyn. That was the team he Brooklyn. He actually grew up as New Jersey, but he wanted to play for the Nets. Yeah, he's a New Jersey kid, and I think he's always been searching for what he defines as home love. And Boston wasn't his decision. Cleveland wasn't his decision. He really hadn't chose where to be except for an injury-riddled year at Duke. And so he's having this injury-riddled uh, year in, in Boston as the young stars J- Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are kind of on the come up without him. He has this very you know, in- interpersonal summer of, of searching for his own truth. And he goes back to his uh, Sioux roots. His mother grew up on the Standing Rock Reservation. He went there and kind of connected with his with his, those spirits there. He connected with Bill Russell in the bleachers of a gym where they talked the 60s. They talked race. They talked race in Boston, which, you know, friends of, of Kyrie tell me was not a small part of, of why he left. And then in January 2019, before the the Pruder tape, if you will, that we've all seen of KD and Kyrie talking about two max slots at the All-Star game. They're actually over at Kyrie's place when the Warriors are coming to play the Celtics. The wine is flowing, the vegan burgers, the vegan smoothies. They're playing as themselves on NBA 2K and kind of thinking about, okay, here's a franchise we can control on our terms with those two max slots, but also players, coaches, owners, that they can tell what to do. And I think that's really what we refer to as the modern player empowerment. 
think what was, what was interesting is that Tyree had chosen that path to come home midway through the season with the Celtics, even though he told them that he was going to sign an extension long term. That changed when his grandfather died and he started looking at the idea of being a person in addition to an athlete a lot harder. And KD had basically already made up his mind to go to Brooklyn while he was still playing in the finals with the Warriors. <laughs> You said that Katie, he liked um, the doctors at Brooklyn. Actually, he had when he tore his Achilles, the Brooklyn team doctor uh, operate on him. He liked the colors. He liked Jay-Z. He, and his dad, though, was pushing him to go to the Knicks, saying, you, you like New York so much, go to the Knicks. And he's like, ah, I'm more of a Brooklyn person. I, I'm not a, a Knicks person. Yeah, he asked his dad right before the free agency window officially opened, you know, what do you think about Brooklyn? And his dad, who's a longtime Knicks fan, said, you know, the Knicks is Mecca. If you want to do it, do it big. If you want to be a New Yorker, be a Nick. And KD, as you said, he likes the black and white. He didn't want to be the savior of the Knicks. He didn't want to be on Broadway necessarily. He's kind of a pure hooper for all of his entrepreneurship and, and you know, Hollywood mogul stuff as well. His dad shot back over text, are you doing this just for Kyrie because he's your buddy? And KD said, no, he's really making this decision for himself. That, of course, didn't stop the Knicks from desperately and you could say rule-breaking in in reaching out to KD's dad and having a video conference trying to desperately lure KD to Broadway, even though he'd already made up his mind. And I mean, the Olympics are coming up and, and worse than I'm interested about the team is I'm looking to see, well, who could recruit who? Because it seems like every time there's an Olympics, it's not the story about how the team does. It's what happens LeBron, Wade, Bosch all decide to form a team. And you put back to the 2016 Olympic in Brazil when uh, KD, Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan were all together and they got to get to know each other better. And they were on a cruise ship the whole time because they couldn't be in the city. And that was where the bonding formed, where they talked about forming maybe a super team in the future. Yeah, it's easy to forget, but 2016, there was another virus, super bacteria concern that Rio de Janeiro, before the Olympics, could be kind of contaminated with this raw sewage and, quote-unquote, athletes could be swimming in human crap. So it's it's a far cry from, obviously, the devastating virus we've faced, but the NBA, Team USA basketball hoopers were on this luxury cruise liner and, you know, yet more wine flowing and DeAndre Jordan and, and Kyrie and, and KD really you know, formulated at least the nugget of the beginning of their super team in the immediate aftermath of Kyrie hitting that game-winning shot with LeBron. So it just goes to show that player empowerment has to do with friends, colleagues forming the super teams that they want. Even if they're under contract, even if they're waiting for you know, the, the term limits, if you will, of certain dynasties to give way to the next one, and I think the Nets, given everything that's going on the last year, year and a half, kind of haven't hit their stride yet in terms of that dynasty. But it's coming, and, and they saw this coming a long time ago. So the Nets, while this is going, while the plans are formulating Katie and Kyrie, the Nets were a team that people thought were going to be terrible two years ago. And Kenny Atkinson, and then he had players like Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, uh, and D'Angelo Russell was actually on that team. But they overperformed. I mean, there's a team that's supposed to win like 18 games, they ended up winning 42. And they started this thing called the program, where they were analytical, and they had so many staffers, and they're, they're, everything was to the T. And they created this whole idea of, of the program, we're going to be better than everyone else, we're going to do everything, we're going to work harder. Sort of like we're down here in Miami and they, they talk about the culture with the Heat. It was sort of like the program with the Nets. But then when Katie and Kyrie come in, it's, there's that conflict between, quote, the program and then the superstars. And really, a, what one top executive at the Nets franchise referred to as a blank check for these guys to do whatever they want. So, yes, the performance staffers and the elite medical team 
were living in KD's mansion in the cliffs of Beverly Hills over the summer while he was rehabbing his Achilles. Yes, all of the attendant luxuries of the modern NBA were basically a recruiting tool to get these superstars. And so if you look back at where the Nets came from, where they traded a quote-unquote big three uh, for Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Jason Terry back in the day, the former GM of the Nets, Philly King, told me, that that was actually a recruiting tool for KD as well, for the Nets to build up something that KD could see from afar. And this was for his 2016 free agency decision. Obviously, that big three trade failed spectacularly. One of the most embarrassing trades of all time left the cupboard empty for the Nets for years. But new GM Sean Marks and Atkinson built that back up again. But then by the time that quote-unquote culture, you know, lured KD and Kyrie in 2019, they became the culture. They didn't believe that the culture had really started. And so, you know, Kenny Atkinson's program, you know, kind of withered a little, kind of got overtaken. He got forced out, even though everybody thought that he was a big reason that KD wanted to come play in that system. Again, this is just player empowerment exerting its will rather than franchises building up what we see as programs. I think that goes back to Miami, the decision, you know, Spo and and Pat have have obviously built an an immaculate franchise and, and sustained it over years. But that really kicked into gear with superstars dominating as they do this league day in, day out. Yeah, and then the issue is, I mean, last year, what was so crazy with the Nets is that Ky- KD can't play the entire year. It was expected he wasn't going to play. Kyrie was, again, with more injuries in and out of the lineup and disappearing. And then you have the team and, and, and trying to perform. And then you had Dinwiddie doing playing as well. So it was, it was a sort of they were there but not there type of thing. Where, like you mentioned in practice, how KD was always in the, there was the area where the massage table was. There was like the superstar area for the pr- practice. And then there was the rest of the practice. Yeah, it's kind of like the cool kids table in the lunchroom <laughs> in high school, right? And, and I'm not saying it's, it's that juvenile, but it, it can be that um, divided, if not divisive, if that makes sense. And, you know, Spencer kind of graduated to the cool kids table. But then when Tyree and Katie were really out of the picture and the pandemic set in and injury set in and surgery set in for, for Tyree, they were kind of orchestrating some things in the shadows in terms of um, Kenny Atkinson's departure. I think even he would admit it was a firing. And then, you know, what came next with other players? And as Kyrie made this kind of stink about potentially opting out of the bubble and how other players should join him, I think some players who felt like they should play in the bubble, who felt like, you know, activism and change could be dealt with from inside using players' voices. Kyrie had some differences with teammates, and I'm not sure they quite made it back the next year if they disagreed with him off the court, which is to say nothing of the fact that KD was basically ready to go for the bubble. There were these kind of secret workouts that Kobe Bryant told Jim, may he rest in peace, that kind of became Nets West headquarters during the bubble. And again, that's kind of not really with the rules of the NBA. They weren't supposed to be there given the harsh um, and strict COVID protocols. But KD being the hooper that he was, he wanted to get in the bubble. He wanted to get back in the gym. It could have been an epic run for the ages. But this Nets elite performance staff said no. And you also mentioned how Katie even said, I want to, whereas Kyrie said, I want nothing to do with the bubble. I don't want to be there at all. Katie said, look, even if you don't want me to play, can I just go there and root the team on? And uh, they said, no, Katie, stay away. You're not, well, it was actually, they, he wasn't allowed if you weren't actually playing on the team to be in the bubble. I mean, could you imagine wrestling with these personalities day in, day out? I think it's a big reason that the, these big dogs wanted Steve Nash in there. His relationship with KD goes back to when Nash was kind of a, a fake assistant coach with, under Steve Kerr in Golden State. Uh, KD called Steve Nash kind of his Yoda, and so the not-so-young Skywalker 
you know, reunited with him. And, and Steve's, you know, I worked with him at Bleacher Report. He's fairly hands-off, even though he obviously is a tactical wizard, former MVP. His philosophy this season has been, quote, protect the group, which basically means insulate these guys from the media, which obviously KD and Kyrie have their issues with, uh, from just the difficulties of the outside world while letting them pursue those things off the court if they want to. Obviously, KD's got his kind of budding boardroom empire, and and Kyrie has all sorts of off-the-court pursuits and, and scandalettes, if you will. And yet Steve can kind of lean back and let these guys be, be themselves. And you add James Harden to the mix, and you know, it's been complicated with injuries. I think it'll be interesting to see how these personalities mesh, especially off the court and as kind of this group that KD likes to call Mets World. <laughs> I didn't think, I was like, I think it was helpful this year that KD had the domino. I was there at the Barclays and saw Durant have two of, one of, the, two of the greatest games you could imagine, uh, just dominating performance. And people were questioning whether he could ever come back, and he's uh, arguably better than ever. And I think that helped him in sort of saying that he's the alpha dog on this team. But because I was concerned that there's, a, the Ky, there's part of that Kyrie, and you mentioned the quotes in the book, it's almost like he won the title. LeBron, if it wasn't for, he, if it wasn't for Kyrie's shot, LeBron would have never won that title in Cleveland. Like, like it's almost like his his sense of himself, and whereas I don't know in a close game whether he'd be taking those last shots instead of letting Durant did, and like with Golden State, I thought Curry and Clay Thompson in the finals in the fourth quarter they let Durant make those shots. They 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 stepped back in a role. I didn't know if and I'm pretty sure Harden would because you see how Harden played with this series, but I'm not sure if Kyrie would be willing to take that step back and not take that contested shot and let just KD take a game over in the fourth quarter. Well, Harden was playing like a 75-year-old man out there in, in the Eastern Conference Finals. But, yes, he's shown a willingness to you know, let down his ego and his shots and his dribbling 90% of every possession to, to help his real, really friends who he respects. I think Kyrie's an interesting case in that he's really a pupil of, of his own Yoda in, in Kobe. And Kobe, as I kind of get to inside the room and unvarnished, he was a killer, right? And, and, and I think he didn't care about those guys from the program or the seventh man so much as how he could use teammates to, to take that last shot. And, and sometimes Kyrie has Kobe in his head when they're down to the last minute, and he doesn't mind taking that isolation play and thinking about Kobe's advice, the same advice he gave to him for that game seven shot, you know, tuck your right elbow toward the hoop. Kyrie had that same advice going through his head when he dropped 54 after Kobe's passing at Barclays Center. I think when Kyrie's not the guy. He, he chose to have control, but he also didn't choose to come alone. I think it's interesting that KD in some ways followed Kyrie to Brooklyn, right? And so if, if Kyrie can you know, disappear from the team for a couple of days at a time, do his own thing, treat it as a day job, you know, he also brought everybody here. And so he has a tremendous stake in this franchise's success. And I, I don't think he's going to be afraid to take the buzzer beater next season. His, his feet certainly aren't as big as KD's to step on the three-point line when it could be. <laughs> and it just the challenge, I look at, you know, when people criticize Phil Jackson, like, oh, anybody could win. I mean, oh, I mean, to try to coach this, these personalities, first Nash is just going to be the, the huge, and all the criticism that's coming his way. But also with Sean Marks and trying to find out, like, the Blake Griffin worked out perfectly for this team. But it's going to be the right young type of player that is able to step back. And it's just going to be such a difficult challenge to put this whole team together with the personalities and how it's going to work and and because they have this great opportunity to have this run because they're still fairly young three superstars so the point is do you think that they'll be able to like what will happen next year I mean if they, they have to of course avoid injuries but the fact is it's just the challenge of putting this whole thing together and, and, and make, trying to get this run going they'll be ring chasers I wouldn't be surprised if, if 
KD and, and Harden did some recruiting out in Tokyo. You know, Kevin Love type could easily come in on a on a buyout. Um, to say nothing of who knows some crazy Dame Lillard scenario that would be the most unfair team like Warriors times two. But but I think as you said, it, it, it's about these big dogs finding out how to be dominant while being respected for being dominant. Inside a room where, where Kobe was giving some advice to Kyrie, Kyrie was talking about Brad Stevens and how he, quote, has a bunch of rules. And I'm like, okay, but this is what we're running, and we got to be great within this. And Kobe kind of cut him off and taught him how to be a more mature alpha dog to say, you know, it was okay to overrule the box, really, that Phil Jackson, they got in credit for a matchup switch that helped the Bulls get to the finals once back in the day. But Michael Jordan didn't care, and, and – Kobe told Kyrie, quote, at the end of the day, you do it, you figure it out, you win, and the coach gets paid. You're welcome. <laughs> so I think bringing that attitude is a championship mentality. It's how you win, whether people like it or not. And the Nets may be villains of the NBA for this dynasty to come. I don't think they care. Well, that's, and we've been talking to Matt Sullivan, K-Knock the Hustle, we've focused on the basketball side, but you do spend so much talking about, of course, social unrest and George Floyd and uh, the, and COVID and that they were actually in China. So there's a whole political side of the book, which is extremely interesting and uh, to go cover also. So even if you're, you're not so into the, the, you know, how, what kind of set offense Brooklyn's going to run, I think you love this book because it just covers so many different things. And I think you've got a great response so far from, I mean, t- tremendous amount of good publicity for this book. Yeah, it, it really just does go beyond the game. And, and whether you're, you know, hate reading this as a, as a Heat fan or, or interested in going back across the decade, you know, this, this historic Nets season is cross-cut with scenes from those characters intersecting with the LeBrons, with moments from activism, social media, race, politics, really just influence and what it means to be powerful, famous, and changing the world in a way that sometimes our, our politicians or our leaders cannot, you know, we look to our role models off the court to show us the way forward. Yeah, and I think from back down here in Miami, we sort of saw a precursor of this, certainly with the Heat and how LeBron came in and there was all in that whole, with a whole mix of LeBron and, you know, they won two titles and then some people were saying, well, they should have won four, but, and then LeBron ended up leaving and then Riley was upset that he left and all those things. But the point is, I think it was like, that was sort of one of the first starts where when LeBron made the decision to come to Miami, it was like, he was taking control. It's not like, I'm going to choose where I want to play and I'm going to bring other players and I'm going to join other players together. And now you're seeing, you know, other examples of that. Well, I think LeBron really set the template, and to see how uh, other superstars have followed in his footsteps is fascinating. I was talking to Dr. J, who actually you know, flexed pretty hard on, on his team to, to get where he wanted to go when, when he was you know, a, a, a young superstar, and he was telling me that, you know, that there's a, there was a certain haughtiness, a, a certain selfishness to LeBron's decision 10 years ago, and how he's evolved as a man, and also the game has evolved as not just being about these on-court empires and and he told me that you know there's there's a difference between service to yourself and service to the game and how player empowerment has evolved over the last decade where lebron has not just empowered himself but he's empowered himself to empower others and i think that's where you've seen perhaps his greatest legacy and and you know he told me um, when i when i met up with him at the all-star game that you know this was never just about basketball for him and and he's going to take all the all the blowback all the hate that comes and and just let it ride because he knows his influence reaches you know, millions of people, men, women, you know, black, white, what have you, um, who might, might not even care about basketball. And I think that's trickled down um, to guys who are forming dynasties or, or on terrible teams or, or who are the next great superstars who are still in high school. And I think that's the really lasting impact of, of this generation and this decade of, of hoops is 
really off the court. Well, Matt, in your book is Matt Sullivan. Uh, the book is Can't Knock the Hustle. It's available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon and bookstores, everything. It's a great book. I suggest anyone order it and read it, even if you're not like, want to know everything about the Nets. But uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on Iris Sports. I really appreciate it. 